Welcome to Bureau 42's Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast, and Happy Halloween. This evening, we bring you our consideration of one of the greatest films of the golden age of Hollywood, The Bride of Frankenstein. J.D. Deluzio, your host for this evening's Bridecast. The Bride of Frankenstein holds a place in the history of horror and science fiction for a good many reasons. I can't definitively say if it's the first horror sequel, but it's the first horror sequel to outdo the original film. It improves on the 1931 Universal Frankenstein on almost every level. It's also the sequel that really establishes the first horror franchise. Dracula had sequels, but they came later. Dracula's Daughter in 1936, and Son of Dracula in 1943. And neither really plays much of a part in the Universal monster movie cycle. Dracula's Daughter often gets overlooked, which is too bad because it's a decent, understated horror film of its time. Son of Dracula has no real connection with the other movies. It's the Frankenstein movies that become a franchise, with Dracula, or some version of Dracula anyway, and the Wolfman folded into the Franken chronology later on. But all of this starts with Bride. And despite her only making one canonical appearance, she has become part of the broader culture. If you ask someone to describe The Bride of Frankenstein, well, I asked Bill Paul, host of the longest-running talk show, radio show in Canada, Straight Talk on 106.9 FM, and uh, he's also the town crier for London, Ontario, which for some reason has a town crier. I asked him about The Bride of Frankenstein. I've seen thousands of movies all my life, and uh, the Frankenstein movies, especially Bride of Frankenstein, certainly stand out in my mind, and uh, certainly the streak of white hair through Elsa's head, and uh, her great scream at Frankenstein. They're two uh, archetypical uh, movie moments. And they have been lampooned in many other movies as well. Yeah. And when you see it, you know exactly what they're referring to. They're referring back to the original, the great one, Bride of Frankenstein. The film begins with three actors portraying very overdone theatrical versions of Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and of course Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote the novel Frankenstein. It's so stylized that even Mary calls her own husband Shelley by his last name. The set establishes the dark, stylized visual tone, more on which later. Encouraged by the men to tell more of her story, she begins, and we fade into The Bride of Frankenstein, which actually reflects her novel more so than the earlier film. Turns out the monster has survived the fire, somehow, and Dr. Frankenstein remains alive, once again played by an emotionally overwrought Colin Clive. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Colin Clive had received accolades for some of his impressive performances prior to becoming Dr. Frankenstein, but for the remainder of his career, he would be remembered as the scenery-chewing scientist. Sadly, there would not be much more of his career. Suffering from tuberculosis and the effects of chronic alcoholism, he died two years after this film, in 1937. He was cremated, and his ashes remained unclaimed for about 40 years. The film begins with him something of a broken man, 
recovering from the events of Frankenstein. Then he receives a visit from his mentor, Dr. Septimus Pretorius, perhaps the definitive mad scientist of Hollywood's golden age. My experiments did not turn out quite like yours, Henry. But science, like love, has her little surprises, as you shall see. Good heavens, Doctor. What are these? Pretorius unveils for Frankenstein his creations, miniature homunculi in jars, and encourages him to continue his experiments. Frankenstein, of course, refuses. We get great special effects work here with uh, pre-computer compositing to put the miniature homunculi in the same frame as the full-size actors. The only odd bit here is the appearance of Billy Barty. The late actor and activist played one of the homunculi, but his unveiling was cut for some reason, so he appears without explanation in the background. Ernest Thessinger's acting, camply effeminate and overdone, was clearly influenced by his role in The Old Dark House, the wonderfully deranged film James Whale made immediately following his original Frankenstein. We'll address his performance later because it gestures to a whole subtext that forms one aspect of this film. In addition to this subtext, there's an unmistakable echo of Faust and Mephistopheles here. Pretorius even compares himself to a homunculus that resembles the stereotypical Satan figure. The monster, meanwhile, gets captured and chained up in a kind of mock crucifixion, tormented, and eventually escapes and takes refuge with an old blind hermit who teaches him to speak and some basic social manners. It's a memorable sequence, brilliantly acted by Boris Karloff and O.P. Hegie, Hegie, I'm not sure how you say his name, based on a scene from Mary Shelley's original novel. Again, this film is much closer to the source material. The p depiction of the monster comes closer. I remember, the 1931 Frankenstein film gives the monster an abnormal criminal brain as a way of explaining his rampages. But in the novel, uh, he becomes a monster indeed because society shuns and rejects him for being a monster in appearance. That's the monster we see here. He just wants companionship. He wants to end his social isolation. Before you came, I was all alone. It is bad to be alone. Alone, bad. Friend, good. Friend, good. <laughs> now come here. The monster and hermit's life together as a couple of social outcasts can't last. Some hunters enter the hermit's retreat and all hell breaks loose. Later, the monster meets Pretorius, who uses him to force Frankenstein to join him in making the monster's mate. This reflects an element of the plot, again, from Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein's abortive work on a second female creature. And this was a plot element not used in the 1931 film, but it's a main part of the story here. Karloff is brilliant in the role. He apparently didn't like the dialogue, but he performs it wonderfully as this sort of giant monster child. And we see the creature here at his most human. Remains for me uh, the definitive cinematic performance of Frankenstein's monster. His appearance has changed somewhat. Uh, firstly, because Jack P. Pierce, who did the mic up for most of the classic Universal monsters, wanted to show the effects of the fire from the climax of the first film. The monster's hair has been burned back, and we can see more of the scarring on his forehead and uh, some ugly metal clips. Another change was the result of the demands on Karloff. Karloff had some dental bridge work, uh, and he removed this in Frankenstein to give his cheek a concave look, 
that's a part of the distinctive universal Frankenstein monster look, at least when Karloff played the creature. But he couldn't do his dialogue properly with the bridge work removed, so in this film, the monster has a more full-faced look. Woman. Friend. Why? Some changes have been made to the cast, uh, some changes and additions. Una O'Connor has been added, a servant of the Frankensteins. She's clearly there for three reasons. Comic relief, screaming, and raising the alarm. Her broad performance is amusing, but some people will find the bit gets old before the film ends. Dwight Fry returns to this film. His character from the first, uh, as Dr. Frankenstein's hunchbacked assistant, Fritz, was dead, so he plays one of two new rat-like assistants, Carl. Ludwig is the other. The character is minor, but memorably creepy, and he has become part of a pop culture composite. The next film, Son of Frankenstein, introduces Igor, but he's not really an assistant to the son of the original Dr. Frankenstein, as he is a man with his own agenda. The Igor of popular imagination is actually a blend of Igor, Fritz, and Carl, as much a stitched-together composite as the monster himself. Another interesting bit of casting is the change to Elizabeth Frankenstein. Mae Clark plays her in the original film. By 1935, Clark had changed studios, and her life and career had experienced some problems since the early 30s, so I don't think it was really worth Universal getting her on loan. An actress named Valerie Hobson was given the part. She's a curious choice, a fine actress, but she was 17 when she made this film. She looks older, but Colin Clive was in his 30s, and the pairing is a little bit unusual. Hobson later returned to England to act, partially because she didn't really like Hollywood's studio system, and she eventually married John Profumo, who of course became the British Secretary for War, and was plunged into a notorious scandal in the 1960s. She's alive! Alive! Elsa Lanchester, of course, plays the bride, or the other bride, depending on your interpretation of the title. For so brief an appearance, she remains memorable, and the original makeup, Pierce and Whale, came up with something entirely original, has become iconic. We get a series of cuts and shots, and the newborn monster looks around in confusion. She stumbles. Lanchester was on stilts under her bridal robe, and she hisses like a swan. The actress specifically based her vocalization on those of a swan. They're really very nasty creatures, she once said in an interview. If you've ever encountered swans close up, you know that she's absolutely correct. <laughs> Lanchester's career stretched until the 1980s with too many appearances to mention, but they include roles in the 1946 adaptation of The Razor's Edge and the 1949 adaptation of The Secret Garden. She appears in several films of interest to fans of horror and fantasy, including The Ghost Goes West, Mystery Street, a TV version of Alice in Wonderland, where she plays the Red Queen, Belle Book and Candle, Mary Poppins, Blackbeard's Ghost, Willard, the 1973 Terror of the Wax Museum remake, and the brilliant 1976 mystery spoof, Murder by Death. She appeared in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Night Gallery, a fairly creepy episode of Night Gallery called Green Fingers, 
or at least it creeped me out when I was a kid. She also appeared uh, in an episode of I Love Lucy as a character named Mrs. Grundy, who may or may not be influenced uh, by a couple of other more famous characters by that name. But it's a credit to her acting and to this film that 80 years later, we still remember her as the Bride of Frankenstein or the Bride of the Monster. And if we say someone has Elsa Lanchester hair, we're not thinking of her role as, say, Aunt Wendy in the 1964 Frankie and Annette romp pajama party. The actors were stage trained. Talking cinema was still comparatively new, and so the performances are quite deliberately theatrical. It's a style of acting that suits an artificial world, and this film takes place in an artificial world. It's recognizably like ours, but it's a kind of place where we might reasonably expect monsters to exist. Uh, the entire Universal Frankenstein saga, in fact, takes place in this deliberately uncertain place and time. In Bride, for example, we have a blend of costumes. Contemporary 1930s, Edwardian, and German folk festival. We have sophisticated electric equipment, but no cars in sight. And, of course, the mobs carry torches. We also have heavy influences of both the Gothic Romantic tradition and of German Expressionism. The German Expressionist movement, of course, had a huge influence on horror. Think of silent films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, Metropolis, and Faust, with their deliberately stylized, emotionally expressive sets and costumes. You know, the painted sets, the stylized sets that reflect people's feelings, people's mental states. Uh, we see the influence here in the sets, which strike a balance between expressionist and realist. Uh, we also see these influences in the exterior shots, uh, and uh, we see the influence, especially of Caligari and Metropolis, on Dr. Frankenstein's lab, which has been expanded from the original. It still, of course, includes the amazing machines made by Kenneth Strickfaden. Uh, those machines with their dials and meters and Jacob's ladders and Von de Graaff generators still look great. They still form part of our collective cultural image of the mad scientist lab, and I still have no idea what they're supposed to do. Uh, the Gothic tradition uh, is the dark half of the Romantic movement. Think literary and artistic romanticism, not, you know, person meets person, being meets being romance. Gothic settings, romantic settings, very much reflect the character's feelings. Think of Frankenstein meeting the hermit and uh, other people in very realistic forest settings. But when he's being chased by the mob and captured by the mob, he runs through a forest of leafless, branchless trees that, that look like telephone poles. Very stark, very much a reflection of his state of mind. And, of course, he meets the sinister Dr. Pretorius in a crypt where the scientist is eating, <laughs> drinking gin. I give you the monster. And playing with human remains. The film also gives us an explosive finale that makes sense in terms of the gothic romantic tradition. Those events reflect the emotional state of the monster at that terrible moment. And that terrible moment is the climax of the film's and Mary Shelley's interest in emotional and social and sexual isolation. Friend. Friend. The score by Franz Waxman is brilliant throughout, and particularly effective in the final scene. Uh, Waxman would have a long and successful career in Hollywood, with his final work, I believe, being his much-lauded score for the movie adaptation of Peyton Place. Oh. oh. I thought I was alone. Good evening. Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> 
friend. Yes, I hope so. Have a cigar. They're my only weakness. The film's themes have been adopted by various audiences and applied to different situations. But certainly anyone who has ever felt lonely or abandoned can relate to Karloff's monster. Still, it might be interesting to touch on a couple of examples of note. The Bride of Frankenstein has a significant gay presence. James Whale, the director, was gay. Colin Clive and Ernest Thesiger, while they both had wives, are generally acknowledged to have been closeted gay or bisexual men. Elsa Lanchester was married to Charles Lawton, who was gay. Thesiger plays Pretorius as a fey, nelly, effeminate stereotype of a gay man. The novelization, and possibly the original script, uh, go further to coding him than even the film does. Uh, in the film, he says, be fruitful and multiply in relation to their creation of the monster. In the novelization, he follows that quotation with, let us obey the biblical injunction. You, of course, have the choice of natural means, but as for me, I'm afraid that there is no course open to me but the scientific way. He may literally be referring to the fact that Dr. Frankenstein, uh, a married man, can procreate with his wife, but it would be hard to miss the other implication. It's not difficult, particularly given the fact that the film is the product of a time when homosexuality was illegal, to relate the film's themes of social and sexual isolation to the experiences of gay and lesbian people. Of course, you can apply its themes to any number of situations. Back in the 1980s, I was reading a college newspaper's retrospect of old horror movies. And someone actually used this film to do a neglected nice guy rant that would be uh, not be out of place on certain channels of the internet today. The male writer identified the monster as a nice guy from whom women flee screaming, but who only wants love and so forth. Well, we can all relate to the need for love and friendship, the beating heart at the center of this dark and often darkly funny monster movie. If you're looking for something a little different to watch on Halloween, Consider, alongside the psycho slashers and girls of the contemporary season, consider this classic creation of an earlier time. This is J.D. Deluzio, and on behalf of the Bureau, good night, and have a happy Halloween.